Hello everyone, it is Nick from The Young Project. We've been on somewhat of a hiatus recently for a whole slew of reasons. Uh, and we're going to continue to be in this hiatus for some time. Uh, but in, in the interim, there's this uh, interview that hosts uh, myself and Ben Amala recorded with a guy named Matthew Cortman a little while ago. Thought we'd post it up here so you guys could take a listen to it. Uh, ben leaves about five minutes into the interview due to some uh, uh, some some unforeseen event. Uh, so you'll hear him uh, kind of bow out there, and then it's just Matt and I talking for a while. So we hope you enjoy it. Well, uh, welcome everyone to another episode of the Young Project Podcast. We have a young person here with us for the first time in, okay, not definitely not the first time we've had a young person, Matthew Cortman. <laughs> How old are you? Are you between the ages of one and two or are you somewhere above that as far as the, as far as years go? I'm definitely over two years old. <laughs> Good. But no, I'm, I'm over two years old. Um, okay. I'm over 20 years old. I'm wow. 28. So you're almost 30. How does that feel? That's like midlife right there. 30 is when you hit midlife. Have you had your midlife crisis yet? Are you getting near that at all? Do you feel like you're about to tip over the edge or? Did my wife put you up for this? Is this like? No, no. <laughs> hey, we oh, no not at all. This is, this is, this is do you, no, this is, are you guys that, having? Are you guys having some? No, she'll tease me. No, she'll tease me about that. So it's funny that you went ahead and you're like the first person to ever bring that up or say oh. that. So I'm laughing because it's like that'll be her line. She'll be like, she'll be like, yeah, you're almost thirty. You're like, you're like almost a year away from being thirty. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you know, not even like there's still like two <laughs> more. Like, no, no, it's like if you count down the days, you know. <laughs> and she'll just worry that. He'll just look at me like that and, and smile, and, and I'll just be like, uh-huh. I'm worried that Nick just brought up <laughs> – we bring a guest on, Nick, and you're yeah. going to call him for his age, and then you're going to tell him that he only has 60 years to live by saying he's at his halfway yeah. life. I'm sorry. That's... <laughs> What's going on? This is our like... guest. <laughs> that was really cruel of me. And, kind of and, and you know what the so worst sorry. part about that is? The worst part is if you're telling me this is midlife and I've only published one book so far, that's already adding on a whole new like sense of uh, trauma. Of urgency, yeah. You need to hurry up. I'm like, Stop we need telling you, me these things. We I already need you, have the voice in my head. I don't need you to be a second one. <laughs> we need you to start pumping them out like N.T. Wright. But tell us a little bit about your story. Where'd you grow up? Uh, what's, uh, what, what has made you into the individual that you are today? And why are you the individual that you are today because of things that made you into who you are? Are you always this deep, Nick? No. Just me? Because I mean, just, first, it was, first it was about my age and a midlife crisis. And now it's like, what makes you who you are? I mean, like, I feel like I'm in a philosophy <laughs> class or, or, you know, confessional or something here. But, is, um, <laughs> I'd be glad to take any penance that you'd like to have come my way. That's fine. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I got to get serious here. Um, you've asked a big question. So I don't know if I can answer it, but um, at least to your satisfaction. But the short of it is, like uh, the Wikipedia version of my life, uh, would be to say that um, I was born and raised in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Um, my mom was deeply devout and, and deeply invested in a relationship with Jesus. And so growing mm -hmm. up, um, I was constantly surrounded by that. She was also an unofficial Adventist female pastor hmm. in the sense that um, at two different churches, Basically, they did not go ahead and uh, have, they had like a minister managing like three or plus churches. And so he was almost never there. And so once the church figured out like, oh, you can preach or you can talk, how about you do it? And then sure. like eventually it turned into just 
her preaching every week. Um, but then like unofficially and in the beginning, not even ordained as an elder doing it. Um, so this was back in the eighties. And so when I was growing up, um, I mean, when I was growing up, when I was growing up in her belly, when I was, before I was born, uh, my mom was doing this and preaching and stuff. And then once I was born, she was preaching with me at her hip. And so when I was young, I was, uh, basically, I could be found in my closet in Texas going ahead and uh, preaching to my closet full of stuffed animals, um, trying to imitate her. And so that was my background growing up, like be, feeling like I was a PK kid, despite the fact that like he was unofficially a pastor. Yeah. Um, and then growing up from there, um, I got baptized at 12 years old by Mark Finley during um, a Revelation of Hope meeting that was going on in San Diego, California. Interesting. Um, that was a, a big moment in my life where I was like enraptured with the idea of ministry and how that works and, uh, you know, everything seems so certain and, you know. How so. old were you at, at this point? Just Twelve. Was, Twelve, okay. Yeah, I was nine when I got baptized and it was around the time that I went to a Revelation <laughs> seminar. <laughs> as well you know and and, and of course like uh, the way that uh, pastor finley did it then was he had like these these bibles and uh and other materials and like the more you came to the, the more meeting, you came they had a booklet man it was like a it was a binder that you got if you got yeah. all the lessons that you uh -huh. all the lessons then you and got a binder and, yeah and eventually it worked its way up to the to the biggest goal which was a bible wow i know and 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 i asked i if I remember right, I asked Pastor Finley to sign my Bible. And I am, tr I have, I don't know if the memory is apocryphal or not, that he was, uh, he was wary about signing a Bible. <laughs> that could be my own perception yeah. now thinking back, but he did end up signing it. Interesting. Um, yeah. I hear that yeah. Doug Batchelor does that sometimes. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's not alone if he did. <laughs> But uh, so that happened. I've not seen Pastor Finley uh, since that time. He sure. did. He did do a video recording interview with me that I've never seen, but it was like supposed to be shown to like donors and other people. Um, um, but like, I, I don't know. It's floating out there. There's a there's at some point, you know, if I ever become a problem or or not, somebody's going to find the missing tape. That's right. <laughs> and you've out. just told us about it, though. Now people are going to go digging for it. Yeah, they're going to be part of that. It. I'm kind of hoping they do. I've not <laughs> seen it. I don't. It's been so it's been like almost. Oh, God, this come back to my age thing. It's coming almost like 20 years. years. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. Anyways, moving on from that. Um, that's more than half your life ago. Just think about it that way. Yeah. <laughs> you're on a roll aren't you um so yeah so beyond that here's sure. the here's the funny aspect right so 12 years old you're like oh my goodness mark finley yes ministry i want to be a actually i think that was the line i said on the video i want to be a pastor like mark finley yeah um yeah. then you become a teenager and something happens when you've watched doug batcher on repeat every single day and you're watching you know um every big named Adventist televangelists, sure. including all the ones that are out of style now and only older people remember. And you're watching those constantly. Guess what happens as a teenager? You just kind of, you, you become complacent. You're like, oh, cool. And uh, Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. Um, I've got, <laughs> I've got it all down pat. Doug Batchelor has made Revelation the easiest book of the Bible to understand. My God, Revelation's easier than the Sermon on the Mount to understand. Amen. Amen. <laughs> And so, you know, it was like, cool. I already understand it. I got it. Oh, well, what's the point of the Bible anymore? Mm. I guess I don't, I don't really need to care. Like, oh, is, my mom was so shocked by the change. because She's like, it's like well, why don't you open your Bible up and, 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 and like read in numbers or, or find, there must be something in there you don't know about. I was like, well, so what if there is? You know, I, I, I got, got the what I need, stuff, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I, if I don't know some story about Moses and Numbers, it ain't going to, like, change anything. Like, you know, when the end of time comes, the Sunday law happens, yeah, I, I know the steps. I know what the trick will be that the devil tries to do. I'm good. And I say that with a caveat. The caveat was that because my mom had raised me to not confuse our relationship with Jesus with doctrinal knowledge, mm. even though my interest in the Bible waned doctrinally uh, and, and, you know, in regards to the stories and stuff, my feeling and spirituality about Jesus didn't. 
Mm. So my spirituality was great. I was like prayerful and, and that was all connected. But in regards to the Bible itself, it was boring. It was a one-way letter and I already got the important parts of the letter and the rest was just like yada, 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 yada. All right, well, the yada, yada, that was less interesting to me. You know, yeah. it's like when you read a Facebook post and you're scanning, okay, what's the main part Where's of this? the thesis, yeah. What's the main part of this that everyone's commenting below? You know, they're not commenting about the intro. There, something in here has got 80 comments. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you scan and, and that's what you do. But then around 18, I was graduating from homeschool because uh, I had been through Griggs International Academy. And up until this point, I'm telling you, you had asked me, what's a Bible scholar? I would have said, Doug Batchelor. <laughs> and if you asked me, if you asked me at 18, well, what is a professor at a university who teaches religion? I would have said, and I'm not kidding you, I would have said, a, probably a pastor who didn't have the gift and, this, and he still didn't want to give it up. <laughs> and I mean, I'm serious. This is what I thought. I thought wow. that you, know, you just couldn't speak well. So that's why you'd go into a classroom and, and keep it. I didn't Where you speak every day versus once a week. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I assumed that if you were going to preach, uh, you would know all this stuff. That it mm -hmm. was like, there, like, Oh, it's, it, you know, what I see in a Doug Batcher seminar and a Mark Finley seminar. Well, that is Bible study. That yeah, is exegesis. That is all that. Sure. But the thing is, I read Bart Ehrman's book in literally 24 hours. And it was all about, for those that don't know, um, it's about textual criticism and how the Bible was copied. And it's probably the single most hated book in evangelicalism uh, because it, so many people, you know, because they believe in the inerrancy, inerrancy of scripture, of so scripture, many people yeah. have been shaken by the fact that he was just very, what he did was he did it in a very popular way and he did it in a very irreverent way. Very Whereas bluntly, like, you know, yes. evangelicals are going to be like, if they're going to do it, they're going to be like, so come with me by the hand. I'm going to pull you just a little bit here. Don't be scared. You see, it's still okay. Look, this is, looks problematic, but it's still working for God's good, right? And Ehrman is agnostic. He's just like, I used to be an evangelical and yeah, not anymore. And yeah, this is problematic stuff. But here, I'm going to tell it to you straight. This is a problem. This is a problem. This is a problem. So a lot of people have, uh, you know, who are very sensitive to that. They were, they were shocked by his book and, and so forth. My experience was, wow, this is the coolest thing I've ever read. <laughs> and in fact, it saved my faith. Wow. And I've told, I've told Ehrman this. Um, you, know, you didn't intend it, uh, but you, you ended up salvaging my faith. Because my experience was essentially this. By finding out that human beings had a very intricate role in copying the Bible and preserving mm -hmm. it, that scholars actually were people who were way above the pay grade of Doug Batchelor and actually had to spend time reconstructing the text of the Bible, yeah. had to look through manuscripts. All of a sudden, it, the Bible became not a one-way letter to me, but a letter I had to even help make sure was the letter. Right, yes, yeah. And so all of a sudden, I was like, wait, there's a role for me there's in all, this? Exactly, there's all of a sudden a role for you as an individual to making sense of the chaos, yeah. I'm, I'm part of this experience. Like, the Holy Spirit doesn't just end with this text like i'm playing a role in this oh uh, once amazing. john was done with his book man once to once he was done with the revelation holy spirit clocked I out mean, but you know the funny thing is is that i read that book and it just it 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 changed everything so at first i was angry like why didn't doug bachelor or any of these other people tell you this yeah this? yeah even at times they even had sermons back then that would suggest the opposite suggest that the bible was oh. plopped out of nowhere yeah and in fact yeah. even my aunt uh, when I started revealing what I was learning and stuff, for the first time, she realized that out of like 60 years in the church, she'd never had the thought come to her mind, how did we preserve the Bible? Hmm. Like hmm. it just never, just never, you know, came to her mind. And when she realized what the process was, it was disturbing for her, um, you know, which was confusing to me because, you know, I didn't, I wasn't conflating doctrines and spirituality together. So for me, I was able to be excited because, oh, I was wrong about that. Oh, well what am I supposed to be right about? Let's look, where's the truth? Let's find it. Yeah. So like for me, I was able to transition very quickly from like, oh, that's, that's throwable. Okay, let's throw it away. Move to the thing that then, you know, i.e. the way I would put it is, I thought to myself, if the Holy Spirit wasn't working the way that I thought it was working, why would I spend all my time being concerned about the fact that I was wrong 
when obviously that whole time the Holy Spirit must have been working and was working in a different place. Than I than do. So why don't yeah. I just turn to go look at where it was working so then I can get back on the ship and on board with the project rather than being concerned with the fact that I just hadn't been a part of it yeah. or, or that I was being used by the Holy Spirit unwittingly because I didn't know what was going on. Well, you know, that was easy for me. And I found out very soon that it wasn't so easy for others, depending on how they had been trained to mix together their spirituality and doctrines. So I quickly threw myself in, started like buying up books and, and trying to read things. And uh, I, I decided eventually, I'm, you know, I'm going to need to go to a university, I think, you know, because at that time I was like, nah, college, eh, well, I'll write a best-selling novel or something, you know, that'll, that'll, that'll do good. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I'll get rich quick because that always happens with books. Amen. Hallelujah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, so then I went ahead and looked around for Adventist universities that were going to like show me something that uh, looked appealing because I thought, well, if I'm going to start out in these studies, maybe I should find something that's similar to me, you know, not just throw myself. But I wanted something kind of like what I was reading because all the scholarship isn't from Adventism. Yeah. You know, there's very little Adventist scholarship that's that's uh, deals with any of this stuff in terms of books. And so I was looking and I was like, well, all the people at Andrews have Andrews degrees. That sounds, that feels a bit ancestral. I don't know how good in terms of uh, thinking that is healthy wise. Maybe, you know, it's a little too circular. All right, let's look over at Southern. Oh, everyone's from Andrews. Okay, let me look over here. <laughs> that was my whole thing. Walla Walla, you see like everyone's from Andrews for the most part, mm. uh, for the most part, you know. And then I went to La Sierra. No one's from Andrews. Really? <laughs> And I was like, they were from Harvard and Princeton. And, but I realized, oh, okay, these people are from big name universities that are not in Adventism and they're Adventists. Yeah. And I thought, okay, they're going to be able to help me understand the things I'm interested in from an Adventist standpoint. And I'll know that they know what they're talking about and they're not trying to color it too much because yeah. they've been there. So I went to La Sierra University, enrolled in 2013. I pursued four degrees. Um, I did you, pursued, off the bat, did you pursue four? Or was this a progressive thing? Where it was like every year you're like, hey, let me tack on something else. I, you know, this sounds interesting. Let me, I now care about this, but I don't want to like lose all the credits from that. So I'm just going to like, or was it at the beginning you're like, okay, A, B, C, and D. We're going, we're going all in today. So when I, when I first looked, I saw um, they had a bachelor's degree in religious studies. So that was mm -hmm. automatic. Then I saw that they had just started a bachelor's degree in archaeology. Mm. And I thought, wow, I should do that because, you know, I, why would I just learn about the text? Yeah. Wouldn't I want to also know about the material, real thing that we're discovering all, totally. all the time? So I thought, that's a good match. And then I always liked writing and fiction and stuff. So I saw they had a film degree and I was like, and it was in screenwriting. And I was like, oh my goodness, that sounds so cool. I'd love to do that. I had a complex going into undergrad that um, because I was homeschooled, I probably wasn't that smart. No. I had not, I felt like I didn't go through all the rigorous teachings and everything, the whole, like, yeah. I'm not going to do good. So when I enrolled into, I thought, okay, I just got to pass. I just got to get C's in my first sure. quarter. Like, I just got to get through this. But I found out that the honors program that was there had a dorm uh, a special dorm where you could go ahead and get a room to yourself, potentially. Usually potentially. you might have to, given the numbers, share one. Okay. I didn't have to, as it turned out. But the thing was, I was like, okay. And the, you had to get a certain ACT score in order to get there uh -huh. uh, to qualify for the program. So going into La Sierra, I was like, okay, like I got to try. And I, and I did. I took the ACT. I got the score just by the hair of my chin to get in and so again that just only made me further think like oh yeah i'm a fraud i'm not yeah. <laughs> i just made I just, it like it was, was, it was it was by chance yeah screw that math it <laughs> caused me so many problems oh I'm, I'm terrible at this so then i get <laughs> i get in the honors program and i'm in the honors program thinking to myself i'm probably not going to stay here <laughs> i'm probably because you get kicked out after two quarters if so i thought maybe by the end out. of the year I won't have the grades to be able to stay in here, sure. but it'll be fun. Maybe I'll get my own dorm room. And I did, I was able to have my own. So I quickly found out that my fears were wrong by the end of the, the first quarter and uh, I, my grades were good. And so I kept on, 
I kept on going, uh, but it's a funny point. Like I started school thinking I wasn't that smart and I wouldn't be able to handle this stuff, but I just threw myself into it. Um, graduated summa cum laude and got accepted to Yale Divinity School. Now I'm a PhD student in New Testament at uh, the University of Birmingham. For a moment here, if you'll humor me, let's talk about your book, which has a really provocative title. I don't know. If, did you start writing "Saying No to God" in undergrad? Was I'm guessing yes. as, far as the timeline it, it, goes, it was, I think it was my junior year. Your junior year, okay. So, like, oh, I'm trying to think. Yeah, that would be. I think the third year out of the five. What What prompted you um, towards writing a book uh, like like this? What was the like what what was the catalyst for that? What was your tipping point for being like, okay, there's a there's a gap in in, in not necessarily in scholarship, but in like in my context, there's a gap. And how do I fill that gap? when were you like, okay, maybe I'm the person to do that and I'm gonna do that now rather than later? Yeah. I I well, right off the bat, I'm never someone who's like, oh, I'm gonna I should well, I'm not never that way, but like most of the time I'm not that way where like, oh, I'll just wait until I'm I'm at the point where I should be doing that. Usually sure. it's like if I already have the idea, I must be at the point where I should start thinking about doing it. So like I'll just start getting into it because when, where the passion is, that's where, you know, it's like, okay, let's go. Let's do this. You know, wait. And the passion disappears. There's so many projects from my past that I've thought about, you know, like, oh, I thought this would be a great research article. Oh, I thought this would be a cool. And then like you let three years go by and you look back at it. You're like. I don't know if I want to do that anymore. It's not as interesting to me. <laughs> right. Now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But who knows? Maybe you know, it doesn't mean the idea was bad. Just, you know, maybe you now lost interest in it. I lost interest in to everyone else's uh, potential, you know, loss. I don't know <laughs> if you want to think, if you want to think highly about ideas you've never developed. <laughs> That's um, very narcissistic. <laughs> <laughs> right. Potentially, <laughs> potentially. But then again, I mean, you know, we could be, there could, could be been, truth to it. Yeah. Maybe, maybe if I didn't write saying no to God three years from now, you know, I'd be like, well, there was this idea I had back then, but I don't know, too controversial. Pointless now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when I was in, I think it was my junior year, um, the honors program I was in required that you go ahead and do a community involvement project. So basically okay. you have to go ahead and think through um, how you can do some project to help benefit the community. And one of the projects I mean, there were lots of projects. The typical one is I'm going to go to a, a dog shelter and help them like with their marketing, or I'm going to go over here and I'm, I'm a homebody kind of person. I, I, I'm, I'm, I look extroverted, but I can be quite introverted. Sure. Um, and you know, my passion is writing and, and thinking through ideas and stuff. So I had this idea of like, well, why don't I write a book about, uh, no, not about, what if I write a book that tries to bridge communities that are divided in the church? What if I was to think through, because I knew a number of churches where liberal members had to leave and go start their own church mm. or conservatives sure. left the liberal church because they're like, we can't take it anymore. We can't worship together anymore. We hate you guys. And they left. And there's a lot of animosity. And uh, some of these churches were only just like down the street from, from La Sierra. Um, and I just thought, okay, this is a problem. This is, this is an issue to be dealt with. And one of the reasons that led to this was that I had been in a class with one of my, my mentor's favorite professors, um, Maury Jackson. Uh, he's a professor of theology at La Sierra. And he, we, he was teaching a class on ethics that I was in. And one of the things that he was dealing with is a very classic problem you introduce usually in undergraduate, and that is called Euthyphro's Dilemma. And it, it basically comes from uh, a text by, I think it's Plato, where he's, it's a conversation between Socrates and Euthyphro. And the dilemma that's posed, the question is this, um, is something good because the gods like it? Or is something good and that's why the gods like it? Hmm. I.e. Is, is morality, is goodness arbitrary to just whatever the gods seem to be in favor of? Or is something intrinsically good and that's why the gods t tell you that it's good? Hmm. Um, now, the problem with this conundrum is that essentially it leaves you in a bind as a Christian. Because if you say that morality is whatever God uh, happens to like, so I.e. anything God does is good, morality is completely arbitrary 
it's not intrinsic. There's nothing actually good about anything. It's, it's just a, a joke. It's a crapshoot, yeah. Right. Um, God could tell you today don't kill and tomorrow tell you that uh, you should kill and you would have no ability to argue against it. Mm-hmm. And this is, the, this is the view of divine command theory. Uh, the, what makes something divine is the fact that it was commanded and there's no, you, there's no argument. There's no you involved because it is whatever God does. There's no external principle you can draw on to have a conversation or engage. So that doesn't fit good with people usually. There's always a weird person who does like that idea. You know, they usually go to some, some, you know, authoritarian state or something. But, you know, the, uh, it's usually not sitting well with the majority of people. But the other option doesn't sit well at either. And that option is to go ahead and say that uh, goodness is somehow rival to God. It's like an external God of its own, mm-hmm. something that God respects as if it's not connected to him. Um, in which case, it makes God look kind of like us. And, and morality looks as if it's the, the, the main God. That doesn't work very good. My problem sitting in that class, hearing the question for the first time, was that I knew from the Bible that there were, in fact, stories that didn't fit the dilemma. There were stories in which people were reacting to God and telling him no. Yeah. And God was happy about it. And so that would seem to say, like, okay, that seems to match. That matches the idea that morality is intrinsic and different. But here was the catch. The things that the people were arguing with God know about, they were rooting it in God. Which then again seemed to go to the other option of Socrates, but both were occurring in the same story at the same moment at the same time. And I was like, all right, something's going on here in, this, in the Bible. This is not matching the, the conception that Socrates and Euthyphro are working with. And so when... Um, I was thinking about this community involvement project and I came out and said, Hey, can I do a book? And surprisingly he said, yes. He later revealed later revealed that he didn't actually expect me to finish the book. So he was kind of (laughs) flabbergasted to receive a final manuscript at the end of the year. Um, But then, uh, you know, this was what I wanted to do. I thought, well, if you can solve Euthyphro's dilemma, maybe you can solve the dilemma that is dividing churches. If you can figure out the relationship between God's words and morality and his character, if you can figure all that out, maybe then you could figure out how to get past this endless circle that we are in about inerrancy and and inspiration. Maybe we could cut to the actual core. And if we did, we'd have a new middle ground where everyone could come together and talk again. So that was the goal. And that's what eventually led to the book. Uh, and you know, I finished it, uh, after a year, but then it took about two to three years of editing. Um, and the book went through a lot of revisions, chapters moved around changes, et cetera. I owe so much to Mark Gregory Karras, who's the author of divine echoes and a new book, religious refugees. Um, he went ahead and, and was a huge, huge help in regards to helping to restructure that book and really make it what it needed to be. Uh, but then the book, by then, I uh, was already at Yale uh, getting in my last year by the time the book came out. So it was a, quite a long process. I thought the book yeah. would be out before I even got to Yale. But here it is, you know, released last December and um, still still building some sort of tsunami. <laughs> Slow but steady as new people Wait, find out You want to destroy something with it? <laughs> I do. The analogy I, of a tsunami. <laughs> I, yeah, the tsunami, and, and, and I think I see on the beach inerrancy standing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the story that you open up with from the Bible, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's Abraham and Isaac. Is that right? Or is, am I too far? Am I thinking too far ahead in the... In no, the no, no, I do. I open it up with uh, the, chapter, the chapter on doubt. Uh, and then the chapter on Abraham and Isaac, and then it goes into the problems in the Bible, looking at the at all the other stories. Yeah, and that story I think sets up nicely, kind of what you're getting at with the rest of the book. And it it too talks about the the whole bit about like he doesn't say it outright necessarily, Abraham to God. No, he doesn't necessarily say no outright to him. But in a way, in a very roundabout way, you're able to find something in that narrative where you're like, well, he said, we're coming down. The two of us are coming down together. 
uh, at the end, meaning Abraham and Isaac would be coming down the mountain together. Um, and that story, I think, it, first of all, it, 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 was a, it was a great one to start the book with. But what, what, what was your process of like re- realizing that? Because I'll be honest, I've read that story. I mean, I grew up in a church, right? I've read that story in my life hundreds of times. And I never thought about it in the way that you, the, the way that you looked at it specifically. What, was, what pushed you towards that kind of understanding where you were like, okay, there is more here. Um, and the we that we are coming down or we'll come down together. Like that is important to look at because, you know, I think most of us are just going to breeze right by something like that without so much as a second thought. No, that's, that's a great question. Um, The truth of the matter is I seem to have a natural inclination to find things that everyone else misses. Um, And in fact, my theology, one of my other theology professors told me, um, it's my greatest strength that I see things that everyone else's eyes gla- glaze over. And my greatest danger is that I'm going to glaze over everything that people are normally looking at. Oh. <laughs> so it's like, so watch out for that. Um, but the, the truth of the matter is, is that when I will read certain biblical stories, certain details just stand out to me. And so mm-hmm. when I was reading the story of Abraham and Isaac, it just stood out to me that, you know, how weird is it that, that Abraham is going ahead and, you know, telling the servants that, you know, we're going to come back down. And how weird is it that, you know, he's telling Isaac that something else is going to be sacrificed when, you know, it seems like it's going to be Isaac who's going to be sacrificed. Those things just seemed weird to me. Yeah. But of course, the typical explanation that most evangelicals will give is that Abraham's just a liar. Like, that's just the traditional argument since antiquity. I mean, just about every church believes that. Abraham's lying to both Isaac in order to deceive him and lying to the, to the servants. But so the only reason that didn't stick with me is because of one thing, and that was, wait a minute, isn't that anachronistic? In order for Abraham to lie, there has to be a reason for him to lie. Mm. There has to be, like, motivation. But when Abraham was living, he came from a polytheistic you know, background. He was surrounded his whole life with other divinities. He only discovers Yahweh for the first time because Yahweh comes out of nowhere and says, hi, (laughs) follow me. (laughs) I'm talking. They aren't. So that's a good start, right? And, you know, there's no Moses event. There's no Sinai. There's no, I'm going to give you a big speech about what God you're following. It's just like, hey, I'm worth a shot, right? Because I'm talking and they aren't. So there must be some reason you take take a risk with me. So he does, and he follows him. But the weird thing is, in this environment, right, child sacrifice was not unusual. Yeah. Now, that's for those that don't know that, that's kind of shocking. Like, how, what? What do you mean it's not unusual? Like, no, I mean, like, it wasn't every day. It's not like everybody around was doing this uh, constantly. But it was common enough that you could understand, oh, yeah, this is a legitimate religious practice that different cultures will will do and so you understood that it people believed that this was possible to be done and beyond that right that's just the actual historical period in which abraham's taking mm-hmm. place in but think about when the story of abraham was written down in the version we have it's getting written down in you know the first temple period with the israelites in jerusalem and what does jeremiah and the other prophets and kings reveal that the Israelites were sacrificing children outside of Jerusalem to Yahweh in belief that it was to him. And you have to have like prophets like Jeremiah having God say, I don't want this. Stop it. Um, So like, okay. So even at the time, people like Jeremiah are the outsider, Mm -hmm. right? Child sacrifice is popular enough that even Israelites can think, oh yeah, my, my neighbor thinks that that's legit. Like, okay, like it might shock us, but it was a real thing. So then if this is the case, if both Abraham as a person in his own time period would have had these situations and the people writing the story lived at a time where that was true, then how does it make any sense that the test was whether Abraham would be willing to do it? Right? That suddenly now that doesn't make sense. This is a test. Yeah. Yeah some guy in Moab would have been able to do this test, right? How is this the, the epitome of God's test for a, a, an Israelite, you know, faithful Israelite to show you really do love me? A Moabite would have passed that test. 
So that's a problem. At some yeah. point, if your grand idea of interpreting the story is that, you know, it comes down to something that any other person around Abraham would have done. All right, that just tells you something is wrong here. We're anachronistically putting our abhorrence of child sacrifice into the story. Oh, we do story... that throughout scripture. We're like, yeah. we, we, want, we, make our, we always make ourselves the hero of every single story in the Bible. It's, it's terrible. Yeah. And we're yeah, it's, it's pour our culture into it. We, we, know, we know what we know and we think like life has always been this way. Well, and we know this in medieval Europe, you know, when they painted Bible stories, they painted castles and knights and because, you know, there was no conception of history. They yeah. assumed that if we have castles and they've been around hundreds of years, they must have had castles way back then. They just used different words for them. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and was, like the modern conceptualization of Jesus being like a white, you know, yeah. not like a dark skin, probably short guy with a big nose. Like instead, he's this tall yeah, white guy with would, long hair. And I would say, I mean, I would say in regards to that, you know, my own positions, it's not too weird or outside the mold, but fairly nuanced in the sense like if you're going to talk about the historical Jesus and that's what you're really after, then yeah, you better. And if your movie is about the historical Jesus, you should make Jesus uh, look like he did in history. Now, on the other hand, if you're painting and, or you're trying purposefully to present Jesus uh, to a certain culture or to make him seem familiar and so forth, I don't see any problem with Asian Jesus or white Jesus totally. or, or, we had you know, a on the Nigerian podcast, Jesus. On the podcast, I think it was July, he came out, or maybe it was June, we had um, David Hayward. He's a cartoonist, yeah. and he does um, a lot of religious cartoonists. But the he, Naked he, Pastor, right? Yeah, The Naked Pastor. And he does this thing with, um, he has like 48 different versions of Jesus that he's done. It's so cool. And there's, I mean, there's things from, you know, transgender Jesus to every kind of Jesus yeah. you can imagine. It's the most beautiful, like, because that's, that's exactly, if he did come to re in a representation of all humanity, then exactly. he, he so, could, in any, yeah. various contexts, look like all of humanity. So, yeah. Right. I, theologically, I digress, when you want to no, it's true, but theologically, when you imagine the Christ, he should be represented by all shades of humanity, yeah, all cultures, yeah. et cetera, because he is the quintessential human. So, you, you know, the quintessential human is not a Middle Eastern man. The quintessential human is all humanity together, but you can't, yeah. you can't without creating some sort of revelation or Ezekiel like amalgamation, you know, try to present all of that in one vision. It'll just scare people, but you can present multiple images. So as long as we're talking about the theological Christ who reigns today in heaven and, and how he's brought humanity into the, the realm of God, amen. You know, he can be all these things, but I do think that there is a danger, right? When only one version of this is seen. So yeah, should, you know, if this is true, then you should walk into a church and not only see, you know, the, the white image of Jesus, you should see the Asian Jesus, you should see the Nigerian Jesus, you should see all the various portraits of Jesus around the world so that you're never potentially tempted to only imagine Jesus in one form, only in one way. But if you're going to make a movie about Jesus in first century Palestine, please, you know, he was Middle Eastern. Let's, let's get this right. Okay, we don't. <laughs> don't need to turn this into some fantasy, you know, world where for some reason everyone's Anglo. Okay. Let's, let's yeah. get realistic here. And, and we're at a time and place where you can do that seriously. But, you know, going back to Abraham, you know, anachronism still part of the conversation. When you look at Abraham, you have to just recognize this isn't going to make any sense that he would have some big, amazing thing to go and sacrifice Isaac. And, and besides that, even if that was the case, wouldn't Abraham have already passed the test just by virtue of leaving? Yeah. Right? Could have gone to the map. He left the land of his father on right? his way. And once he yeah. tells the servants, hey, we're going, like, it's just, it, the point of what this was could have been solved earlier, but I digress. The, the real key here is to say, if it's anachronistic to imagine that Abraham would have found it offensive, and if he, in fact, would have been like, I mean, imagine this. There's nothing in Abraham's story that leads him to believe that God doesn't want child sacrifice. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the prophets, over and over again, child sacrifice is condemned. And in fact, in the Psalms, it's even said that if you sacrifice to God, your child, you're actually sacrificing it to demons. Mm -hmm. The mere request is satanic and there's second temple literature as well that describes the request for child sacrifice to be something that stems from satan in fact the book of jubilees retells the story 
of Abraham offering Isaac. And in fact, it's Satan who's the one requesting it, not God. So like this is, none of this would have been in the story of Abraham in the Bible understood. Abraham has no reason to think that God wouldn't want these things. So when you know that, now when you look at those statements where Abraham's like, oh, we're both coming back down. Oh, Isaac, you're not the one who's going to get it. You know, God's going to provide. Well, if it's not, like, why would he lie? There's no reason to lie because the servants are not going to get shocked. I mean, maybe to the kid, right? Maybe to Isaac, he might lie because he doesn't want him to run away, but not the servants. So the fact that he does it twice with two different people, and at least one of them doesn't need the lie because one, the slaves aren't going to overturn their master over this. And there's no religious reason for them to think that it's wrong, right? They might have a personal feeling of like, oh God, what a terrible God this is that would want that. But like, they're not going to enter. So at that point, you have to say, well, wait a minute. The only other option here is Abraham's serious. He actually doesn't believe that this is going to happen. Yeah. Now that's shocking, historically. That's shocking that Abraham would actually have doubt when there's no reason to. Mm. Now you start to get on the idea of what makes this a test. The test isn't whether or not Abraham is going to go ahead and do it. The test is whether Abraham knows God well enough to know that it's not what God wants, despite never being told it. Yeah, yeah. Now, where do I back that up? It's fascinating that Jesus himself interpreted this story in a way totally opposite of how we traditionally do. In John 8, 39 to 41 and verse 44, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But no, now you are trying to kill me. This is not what Abraham did. You are indeed doing what your father does. You are from the father, the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires because the devil was a murderer from the beginning. So now it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus. What are you talking about? Like, especially think of this from an evangelical understanding where even Adventists, where you're like, yes, Isaac is the typical, you know, the, the typological Christ. You know, Abraham killing Isaac is like, it's, it's a like foreshadowing the, it, it, of it's, what's it's to come. foreshadowing of God the Father killing yeah. Jesus, right? And here's Jesus saying, you're trying to kill me. That's the opposite of Abraham. Yeah. Abraham tried to avoid death. Satan tries to get it and particularly kill me. So you guys are of the devil. Abraham was against death. Now, the only way you can get this picture is when you start to look at it the way that I'm outlining in my book, where you're noticing that Abraham's having these convictions early on ain't going to happen. Right. And if, you know, so this really should, you know, more and more like uh, the one project, turn your eyes to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And pay attention to how he's exegeting scripture too. That might help. (laughs) You know, you'd be surprised. Even in John's gospel, there are real tricks, things here that could really help us in terms of noticing how much we take for granted Mm. of putting our own ideas back into the Bible. So then what is Abraham's story really about? It's about a man who's so faithful to God that he knows who God's character is. Mm. So that even though God's words tell him one thing, he knows those words don't stand in line with his character. So he puts his faith not in God's words, but in God's character Mm. and at the end is proven right. And it's so interesting to realize then like the centerpiece of the story has nothing to do with obedience to like the command of God. Oh, look how great Abraham is. It's about how well Abraham knows God, how he truly is a friend of God because he knows God that intimately that he's learning his ways, even without God having to spell them out. And in that sense, right, it's, it's one of those things that it's so tragic that we don't understand that people try to use the story in some gruesome way and try to say, look how great Abraham is when over and over again, the Bible says, this is something only demons want. Like this is, it just makes no sense. So, but right off the bat, you know, I opening up the book with just looking at the fact that yes, God is putting 
one of the biggest tests in Abraham's life on the question of, do you know my character? Not, will you obey my words? Yeah. And that turns out to be a theme that runs throughout scripture. Yeah. And you bring that back around to at the, in the, the latter part of your book, you're talking about things that you and I deal with today, day to day, um, like things like homophobia. Uh, like how, how is it that, what are some things we need to be saying no to today that um, either you mentioned in the book or maybe some things that you left out for the, the sake of time and space um, that, that you that you feel like the character of God, if we understand the character of God to be love, to be only love, that we would say no to some things that we see somewhere in Scripture as being commands. I mean, where is that prevalent today um, in you know modern Western society? I mean, certainly, like off the bat, most people's experiences is that when they're reading a book like Joshua or they're reading Samuel, or they're reading some, some account in which God is explicitly said to have been commanding the murder and death of all these women and children, you know, slaughter them all one after the other. I think there's a text in Ezekiel just like that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to tear out the fetuses from the women's wombs and, you know, this is the way that you'll worship me. I mean, there's just crazy stuff stuff, yeah horrific stuff and usually this disturbs people you know how could god do these things to the canaanites you know this this is a genocide this is wrong and the typical answer from you know an evangelical is to say well your way of understanding god is fallen you know you have a, a a misshapen understanding of morality and so uh, you forget that God is the author of morality. Anything God does is right. Yeah. So then if God tells you, or I mean, if God decides to take someone out, he has every right to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and he can kill any of those children. And in fact, some even go so far as to say it was gracious because he's preventing them from growing up to sin. So he's saving their souls or, you know, uh, it's some really crazy logic that would then lead you to the proposition such as, well, why aren't we blowing up other countries to save all the babies there? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, <laughs> it's really screwed up logic. It's terrible. Infanticide, defending it. Um, and people will read these texts and they'll say, look, I have a problem with this. And what do you do with that? What do you do when you're reading these stories? Like, you know, so for example, we looked, you talked about, you know, Abraham. And that's Abraham believing that God will do something opposite, right? And then God steps in and does something opposite, just as he expected and believed, right? Well, you know, then there's a story like in Exodus 32, 7 to 14, where you have Abraham, I mean, you have Moses on Mount Sinai with Yahweh, and Yahweh says, I'm going to murder every last one of these Israelites down below because they made the golden calf. Get away from me, uh, Moses. And Moses says, no, you can't do this. You mustn't do this. It would be evil. You know, this is, this would break your promises. No one would ever believe you again. No one would ever worship you again. This is wrong. Um, Why is that so important? Because God at the end is like, yeah, you're right. This, you're right. That is wrong. Good job. That is the, that was the right answer. You don't do those things. But how can Moses do that? How can Moses find in himself the strength, but also to be correct that when God says words that don't match, and the key to the story is that Moses, everything Moses is saying no to that God said is all part of his knowledge of who God has been. God isn't someone who breaks promises. God isn't someone based on their history together. Yeah. So he's drawing on like Abraham, his knowledge of God's character to say, wait, these words don't match who you are. And so that's why he's rebutting God and saying no. And God's praising him because he's defending who God truly is. And that's a great model. And, and so it is, and we see this in Genesis 32, where Jacob is wrestling with God and, you know, God comes at him as a curse, wrestling with him and attacking him. And then he says, let me go. And, you know, Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go because you came as a curse. I'm, I want a blessing. I know you want to give me a blessing. I'm not going to let you leave me and let me think that you want to curse me. I'm going to demand you give me a blessing. Okay. So God blesses him with the name Israel and says, you have defeated God. What does Israel mean? It means those who fight God. And in the context of the story, those who will win like Jacob did. Why does Jacob win same way as Abraham and Moses? He wins because he knows God wants blessings, not curses, and he won't allow himself to accept the curse. Great. But in all these stories, you always have God at the end able to go, 
good job. You did it. Hmm. What about people who are reading stories like Joshua, where it says God already did the thing, right? It's not saying God will slay the Canaanite. No, no. God told Joshua, go do this. And then they killed them all. And yay. And you're sitting there going, well, that's not God's character. That doesn't match who he is. Well, then what, what are you going to do? What do you do when now it's already in the text? It's already there. And part of the thing is recognizing that one, the need to say no is still there. Moses obviously doesn't have a misshapen morality. He's able to understand that the words God is saying is no, and God expects him to. Jacob obviously knows the difference between a blessing and a curse, and he's able to succeed. Uh, Abraham, uh, you know, this is important to recognize that when these characters are able to say no to God, it presumes they do have the ability to perceive what's right and wrong. So then what about us when we perceive wrong things in scripture? How do we find the ability to act like Moses without God jumping down and saying, yes, you're right. And part of that is to be rooted in understanding Jesus in understanding that you have to know what is the basis of God's character. So once you've established that, and as Christians, you know, we understand God is love. Love is the trajectory of who God is. Jesus Christ confirms it for us. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay but get to the nitty gritty. When we then accept that and we're looking at something like Joshua, how do we interpret it? Well, one suggestion to put forward is to look at the example of the book of Esther. If you look Mm. at the book of Esther, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, in the Hebrew version, Esther has almost no references to God. It's like God's a missing character. You, You know that it's a spiritual book. You know God is acting in the book in some sense, but he's not on display. He's not there as a character. And that's really healthy. Because at the end of Esther, where the movies cut off, is right before the final few paragraphs. Because the final few paragraphs of Esther are some of the most disturbing in the Bible. After Haman's plot is refuted, because Esther says, please give us the authority to defend ourselves, and the king gives it. Then at the end, and the credits have already rolled by on the films, Esther comes back and she says, well, I'd like you to give us what Haman wanted. I want you to let us have our own day to indiscriminately kill anybody we want. Anything. We just suspect they wish us ill will. We'll kill them. And then he does, and they murder tens of thousands. And it's horrifying, but God's not accredited with any of it. God's not said to have commanded it, inspired it, been a part of it. It leaves that up to the viewer or the reader to think through, all right, where do I see God in the story? And each reader will come up with their own view. Um, when we look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the book of Esther, what ends up actually happening is God is suddenly inserted everywhere and there's now new prayers and there's, it's like much holier. And now God is inspiring. God is everywhere. God is a part of the story. So in this case, we can actually see how God gets stuck in to the story that he was not explicitly a part of. And the reason he does is, again, instead of just readers privately thinking, God is here, God is there, God is there. Now the Septuagint translators have said, well, we believe God was at these points, so we're going to put it in the story. Yeah. We're not going to leave it up to the readers to debate that. Well, okay, what about a story like Joshua, where we only have the version we have? where we're looking at this and the only thing we see is the version with God in there. If it was possible for the Septuagint translators to be putting God in, isn't it just as possible for the writer of scripture to be thinking to himself, well, I know Joshua must not have acted just alone on this. He, yeah. he was being talked to by God. So if he did this thing, God probably told him to do it. Totally. Right. And if that possibility is there and it is, then there is no reason why a devout Christian cannot see that something that happens in Joshua's evil is incorrect and wrong, just like Moses, and says, no, this is not the character of God. This doesn't match God. And so it's not that God commanded Joshua to do this thing to all these women who were pregnant. It's that God was trying to lead them a certain direction, and Joshua decided to do this. And who's going to get the credit in the history books? God. Because the reader wants the, this writer, this translator, whatever, wants the history to be sacred, wants it to look like God was leading everything that occurred. And sure, God was there. But good things, bad things happen with good people. Terrible evils occur with good people. Martin Luther and John Calvin, for all the good that they did, did plenty of horrible, evil, 
condemnable things, Mm -hmm. things that could easily, you know, in the evangelical mind, condemn you to hell. And, you know, they did them thinking they were doing them for God and that God wanted them. That doesn't mean God did, even if they were inspired and being used by God. So if that's true in our own world, why wouldn't that be true in the Bible? You know, you say, okay, what are, what are things that we should be looking to? I think we have to be keeping the character of God in focus, right? We need to change our viewpoint from inerrancy of scripture, of writing, inerrancy of character. And that means that when we start approaching issues like homophobia, or we're approaching issues like patriarchy and misogyny, and we're looking at issues of, of racism in the Bible and so forth, we need to be thinking through these issues through the character of God. And in fact, we have been in the past, you know, in America's past with slavery, abolitionism, like the abolitionists were firmly against slavery, not because they had Bible texts that supported abolition. There weren't. There there were, was, there's texts in Second Peter that are like, yeah, submit you slaves oh, no, to your and, masters. And, and even like the, the, the overwhelming evidence of the Bible is in favor of slavery. Sla- totally, and, and it's yeah. continuation eternally uh, in some sense. But, and you know, I, I walked through that in a chapter in the book, just outlining all of this point. The fact is the abolitionists had to look to principles in scripture to undermine all the explicit texts, to argue that even though this text says this explicitly, and although this text outlines this explicitly, ah, but the general character of God, the general trajectory of God is completely against this. Mm-hmm. And so scripture is against this because of the trajectory of scripture going opposite of it. That is a fundamentally different argument than like what we're traditionally used to hearing nowadays. But it's what won the argument over slavery. People just stopped caring. Uh, They stopped saying like, oh, it matters that there's a Bible text here or there that says this. In fact, Ellen White, she writes uh, to an Adventist who supported slavery. And she says, there's not a single argument you can give me that will change what the Holy Spirit has revealed to people today. Right? What are those arguments? Scripture. You cannot give me a single scriptural argument about any of this stuff that I would care about because what the Holy Spirit is revealing is in line with the character of God. End of story. You're going to be thrown out of the church if you don't get in line. And the fact of the matter is that when we think about how we're looking at current issues in our church, like LGBTQ or like the role of women, we're so fascinated with the text, with the words, with can I proof text this? And the real key to successfully fighting scripture or dealing with these debates between God is where is the character of God pointing to? Hmm. That's where the conversation needs to be. That's where my book tries to orient all the different approaches to these different uh, issues that are dividing us. The center has to be Christ's character, God's character of love. If that's not at the center of where we're going with all this, then we're just going to go in circles and you know what? If we keep in those circles, we would have never gotten rid of slavery. Yeah. And so if we want to fix the issues we have today, we have to learn what we did before. And the problem is, again, sure, what were we doing back then? We were saying no to God. We were saying no back in the abolition period to those scriptures that supposedly had God's words and were directing people to own slaves. And abolitionists were like, no, we're not listening to that. Yeah. They were saying no. And the thing is, there's a problem when we're saying no to God, but we're not wanting to admit it. We're not wanting to admit consciously, oh yes, I am saying no to that. Instead, you get these weird workarounds where everybody's like, oh no, please, I'm going to wiggle my way to say that actually the text says this, or actually it isn't. It's like, no, let's just be honest about this. The Bible supported slavery. The spirit was against it. It always was against it. And we need to admit that and then be al- allow the spirit to use us. Because if we're saying no to things in the Bible without consciously knowing we're doing it, there's a real strong chance we'll do it wrong. There's a chance we won't be following the guidelines of the spirit and love. And we might say no to things for our own personal reasons, our own agendas. And that would be bad. The only way to escape that is because we actually listen to the spirit we actually follow the examples of people in the bible like moses like jacob like abraham who were doing this 
and look for the way that they did it to stay true to what God's calling was when he called his people Israel. Now's the time to plug your book. And it's fantastic. I've read 90% of it, maybe 85, because I am a skimmer. Man, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, the title is provocative enough of in, in and of itself. So that's super fun. But where can people find it? Where can people find you? Um, where can our listeners pick up a copy and, you know, fund your, fund your life? <laughs> Just pay me a full salary. <laughs> yeah, I'll write every day. <laughs> you've really been going for that. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, people can find me on my website, uh, which is matthewjcortman.com. They can find links to this stuff on the book's website, saynotogod.com. Um, you know, the book's everywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, uh, you can you can buy it wherever your heart pleases. It, there are many options, uh, and certainly ebook options are bound as well in other areas. And um, the book is really, I hope, a conversation starter. And so, as a result of that, please, if you want to reach out to me and talk to me, I am available on Facebook. I have a Facebook page you can find me at, and I have a Twitter, M Cortman. You can find that as well. Send out a message. I'd be happy to talk with you. I'm not you know, not hiding away in a cloister. Just really? Interested. You're not? No. I just I, assumed. I mean, Look, I mean, I'm seeing this white wall behind you. This could be a prison cell. I mean, cell everybody's yeah. hiding in a, in a cloister right now. This True. is the era of COVID. Okay. Uh, but, you know, I am reachable and I'm more than happy to talk with people. So, yeah, I, I hope, though, that more than anything, what this book does is that it doesn't end a conversation. It doesn't serve as like a, as a, an anchor in that sense, but rather as like a, a motor that will help somebody to actually start moving and thinking of things in a new way so that they can have better conversations. You know, the second half of my book, like you said, goes through a bunch of different issues. First half of my book's like really big in terms of biblical studies and these stories in the Bible. And then the second half is like, okay, this issue, this issue, this issue, how would yeah. we do that? How but do we those, deal with it today in our present context? Yeah. yeah. But I state right up front, you know, at the beginning of the, the section that this is just my attempt at thinking through what you could do. Mm. I'm not expecting readers to be like, oh, yeah, I fully endorse what you just argued here with this. And I fully think that that's not the point. The point is the biblical evidence is indisputable. The themes in those scriptures have been ignored. So if we do take them seriously, we're going to have to start thinking through these issues in new ways. This is just my attempt to do it. It might not be what everyone likes, but the attempt has to be done. Yeah. So if nothing else, I hope that my book manages to inspire other people to do those same attempts, to do theology better than what we've been doing it as. Yeah. No, and I love that. Looking at the character of Christ as the, that is the inerrant aspect of scripture, whereas the, the, the actual words on the page itself, um, that's, that's what needs to be looked at fairly critically um, through the lens of Christ's character. A great example of this is in the book of Job, where when God comes out of the whirlwind and he's talking to um, Job, he talks to Job where Job is. He speaks to Job where he's at at that time and what that time in that place is Edom and polytheism. So when God talks to Job about the great monster Leviathan, he references other gods. He says, 
you know, did not the gods shake Job when Leviathan was roused and so forth? And are not the gods afraid to come near Leviathan? That's huge. God is admitting other gods in the text. And, you know, whatever your views might be of the author of Job, right? There were monotheistic Jews copying Job Mm -hmm. and they had to make sense of it and they had to keep it in the tradition. And so here's the thing. God is here speaking to Job, telling Job things that he would relate to, to try and make a bigger point. And that's something we miss. Mm -hmm. We get hung up on, well, look, God said it, right? But just because God said there were other gods doesn't mean there were other gods. It means Job believed there were other gods and God needed to get a point across to Job. So he didn't think it mattered to try and deal with that small detail before he could make the bigger point. And the same thing, you know, I explore in my chapter on saying no to hell, where, you know, I'm looking at the question. Next favorite chapter, by the way. Next favorite chapter. (laughs) You know, and and I'm looking at the fact that every time that Jesus talks about hell, it's different. Every single time, either different in chronology, different in description, and all of his descriptions match what his audiences were thinking. Mm. As Mm. if every time it's a different audience, different expectation. And in fact, even Ellen White talks about this in relationship to... Um, the story of the parable of Lazarus, where she's like, yeah, Jesus is lying. Jesus is not telling a true story. Jesus knows there are people there who believe that hell is like this. And he's not interested in fixing that conception to make the point that the story was about, which was helping the poor. So he just discounts the doctrinal need to fix that issue to make the bigger point about the issue of helping the needy in the moment. Hmm. And that's just, again, that principle that the Bible has stuff in it that's false because it's trying to make a bigger point that's true because the people who received the Bible weren't ready or had issues and hangups that God wasn't interested in trying to get through first to make the point. That's, that's got to become part of our conversation. Yeah. That, that understanding has to become part of it because otherwise we're just navel-gazing. We're just trying to look at whatever text we can grab onto that makes sense to us without realizing like, okay, what really matters here? It's Mm. the character of God. It's the trajectory that character points to. If that's not in focus, everything else fails to matter. against stagnant Christianity, go to theyoungproj.org. Special thanks to Peter Flores and Frankie Bones for our theme music, Angel Castillo for our online presence, Peter Flores again and Lindsay Hafner for curating our blog and blog respectively, and your hosts and producers have been Ben Amoa and me, Nick Root. See you next time.